The Jewish observance of Passover began at sundown Friday night. Along with other major Jewish holidays, Passover offers lessons beyond Judaism and even beyond religion. I'm very happy to be joined now by Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, president of CLOW, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Uh, He's not new to this show. He's been on many times, always to our benefit. Brad, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Welton. It's an honor and a joy to be with you. Uh, I I was just thinking in going over some of the things I want to ask you uh, in relation to Passover, and uh, it it just occurred to me, I live now um, in uh, not a totally homogeneous culture, but in in some ways it is. Um, I certainly live where uh, there is not a strong Jewish presence and uh, I'm around a, a lot of Christians of different stripes, uh, and often I will hear uh, someone in the Christian community say, uh, Passover, I, I thought Passover uh, occurred at the same time Easter occurs, and uh, so wh- what What are you doing celebrating Passover now? <laughs> Aren't we a little late? <laughs> so so uh, I thought it might be helpful for you just to talk about uh, why Passover is where it is this time. <laughs> I would be happy to. Yes, Passover is a little late this year, and that is an expression you'll even hear in the Jewish community where it's clearly not pegged to Easter, and it's so funny, because how can a holiday be late? It, it, it is when it is, according to the Hebrew calendar. But in fact, what people are saying is we typically expect it to be a little earlier in the spring, and in fact, a little bit closer to Easter. There are obviously good historic reasons for that. I will leave the first century historians to thrash out whether the Last Supper was a Passover Seder, the ritual meal that celebrates the holiday or not. If it happens, I have a brother-in-law who is one of those historians who uh, is fiercely opposed to the notion, thinks it was a very important and sacred meal, but it wasn't the Seder. But it clearly (laughs) happened around that time of year. Easter did happen as the Jewish people are gathering uh, for Passover, and it is clear that the Easter story is a story of of liberation Mm -hmm. and redemption, as the ancient Israelites celebrated, leaving Egypt and Jews to this day celebrate liberation, redemption, and freedom. So what happens that we got out of sync, as it were? What happens is that the biblical calendar is a lunar calendar. The lunar year comes up about 12 days short of the solar year, the solar year being the one that the Christian calendar is pegged to, the American calendar is pegged to, most of the secular world globally is pegged to. Now, if you go with a strictly lunar calendar, the holidays start to migrate because they are those 12 days short. So a holiday that was in April one year is in June the next year, is in August the next year, and in fact, the large religion that does still work with a strictly lunar calendar is the Muslim tradition, and that is why people say, wait a second, Ramadan, the month of fasting that a lot of people know, because they'll have friends or neighbors who they see are, you know, eating only after sundown and not until, and then stopping at sunrise the following morning. They say, well, didn't you do that at a different time last year? Hmm. And the answer is yes, because it's a strictly lunar calendar. Mm-hmm. Easter will appear in a very rigid kind of time frame because it's strictly solar. Mm -hmm. The Jewish calendar 
starting around the time or a little bit before the time of Jesus, was a mixture of called a lunar solar calendar. Mm-hmm. It mixes the lunar and the solar, adding an extra month seven times every 19 years. So mm-hmm. there's a 19-year cycle, seven times in that 19-year cycle, an extra month is added. And that month tries to keep the holidays more or less in the same season. Mm-hmm. Now, why do we do all that? Because all of the ancient Jewish holidays have both an agricultural element and a social historical element. Mm-hmm. Passover was not only the story of redemption from Egypt and the journey into freedom, that's the historical moment, it is also the spring holiday, the holiday of rebirth and renewal as things are beginning to grow. So what happens is this happens to be a year when one of those extra months got dropped in, and Passover is a little bit later. Next year it'll spring back, no pun intended, (laughs) start to drift again, and then another month will be added two years out. So really what we're dealing with is trying to keep holidays that honor both the agricultural rhythms of Mm. the world and the historic events of the people who are celebrating. And this is a good time to to follow that by asking you to do a kind of... uh, Twitter-length definition of how Judaism observes Passover. Sure. The central piece of Passover is a kind of dinner party and conversation called the Seder, S-E-D-E-R, which means order in Hebrew. Now, anytime you call something order, you know it must be there's lots of disorder. (laughs) You can imagine if you bring together lots of family and friends. I don't know about your family, but I know in my family that can get a little dicey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and really what it is, is each night, the first two nights of the eight-day-long festival, families will gather at home, and they will tell the story of going from Egypt Mm -hmm. into freedom. Mm -hmm. Families will sit around, and the three central pieces of that observance, yes, there's all kinds of foods that people enjoy, and, and I get the when do we eat question, <laughs> but the three central pieces are to tell the story in a way that each person feels, even to this day, that each of us ourselves is leaving Egypt, that each of us ourselves is being liberated. And in fact, the Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, actually means a tight spot. So the first thing, the central observance of Passover, is gather with people you love and tell the stories, both ancient and personal contemporary, of the tight spots you're in and try and see yourself getting out of them. The two food, or three foods, really, around which that happens are the drinking of four cups of wine or grape juice if you don't want liquor. And those cups are raised at the beginning of the meal to announce it's a sacred event. As we tell the story, because even though it's a story that starts in slavery, we trust it's going to end in happiness. At the grace after meals, so we know that having eaten the food, we are really satisfied and can celebrate it, and toward the conclusion of that Seder, in order to sing psalms to God of praise 
for the circumstances we're in. So that's the four cups of wine. There's the matzah, which is the thin unleavened bread that I'm sure people have seen. Uh, it's become so popular that even if there's no Jews around, it's amazing how a box of matzah will make it to a grocery shelf. Mm-hmm. And those literally are baked to remember, and that's what we eat. There's no leavened bread for observant Jews for eight days, no leavened anything. Because we had to leave in such haste from Egypt, there was no time to let the bread rise. Mm. And so we substitute matzah for bread on this holiday. And then the last piece are the bitter herbs. Because as beautiful as this story is, as much as we trust we are going to be liberated, we have been liberated, and will be yet again liberated. Mm. As much as we know we can eat that matzah because we are taking the journey into freedom, we also want to remember the things have been bitter and tragically remain bitter for certain people in the world. And that our freedom and celebration of it should never make us forget that there are other people who are still in the bitter herbs phase and are still suffering all kinds of forms of slavery Hmm. all over the world. You know, Brad, I I listen to you and think what you already know and have shared so many times. There is such great relevance to the issues of the day in the Jewish religious calendar. And I'd like for you to just talk for a moment about the wisdom that is to be found in the Passover observance that is applicable uh, to all people. Sure. And I, and I love that you appreciate it. And I would say that actually each of the world's great traditions, and I think sometimes people forget it from the outside and, and practitioners on the inside forget it, our traditions stick around because they are gifts from God to the world, to all people, and they all have things to teach us. Mm. For Passover, it seems to me it's pretty straightforward. Everyone has been at some time in their life or knows someone who has been in their own personal Egypt in their own tight spot. And we know if we can gather together with people we love and tell the story of other people who got out of tight spots, we're probably helping to lift ourselves out of the tight spots we may find ourselves in today. Mm -hmm. And so that's the personal part of Passover that I think everyone needs and deserves. It is that liberation story. And and if I can, without saying disrespectful or glib, it is the story in some measure, or at least a part of Easter, Mm-hmm. That the dead really return to life. Don't ever give up on that. The dead return to life. The slave becomes free. The tightest story can become the most expansive. Mm-hmm. That's the personal. But it's also national and global. Slavery is a real problem in parts of the world today. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that metaphorically. Slavery, people who are bought and sold like shoes and cars and loaves of bread. And it doesn't affect 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people. It affects between hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of people. And so this is a moment to talk about what does it mean as the Bible most repeated phrase in the five books of Moses, remember that you were a slave in Egypt. What does it mean to remember that there are still people enslaved in the world and that our freedom and celebration of it can never let us forget that we are not ourselves fully free until everyone is free? Hmm. 
You know, uh, you say that so beautifully, and it is so terribly relevant, uh, given how many people around the world today are threatened, uh, wrapped up in fear, uh, anxiety, and many of them, and 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 I'm I'm pretty convinced that uh, the people who talk about religious persecution in our society, and I'll talk about my own tradition, those people who say that Christianity is under persecution don't have any idea what they're talking about. There are people all over the world that, because of their religion, they are being persecuted. Um, Connect those dots, please. Well, I, I guess, and, and I don't know if this is totally what you mean, but I know you're right about what you're talking about. That feeling of persecution is real, and it's ironic because it's real to people in very different settings. And so where I come at this from is I take people's feelings of persecution incredibly seriously, even if I don't necessarily agree with their analysis. So when someone in America says that they, as a Christian, feel they are under attack religiously, I feel it's my obligation to take that seriously, even though I also might point out to them, since, and we'll just keep it in the frame of Christian persecution, you could go half a world away and people are being murdered because they're Christian. Right, right. You could go half a world away, and people are spending their lives in prison for having a Bible that they're not supposed to have. That seems to me as very serious persecution. And what I would then say to the person here is, I get it, there are times even people in the majority feel under duress or even under persecution. Because somehow in our pursuit of trying to honor minority needs, the majority feels, how did this get so backwards? And now we feel we have to apologize. Mm -hmm. By the way, not related to religion. Alexis de Tocqueville noted that when he came from France to America and talked about the danger of the tyranny of the majority, and then also said that the minority can also tyrannize because in the desire to help them, we forget the majority. So I get all that. Mm -hmm. I would simply say to those people who feel that way, let's make sure that in helping you feel less threatened, less tyrannized, less apologetic, less persecuted, we not persecute others. Uh, Rather than debate who's persecuted and who's not, I always point out there's very little hope in achieving your freedom by persecuting other people. It just doesn't work. So if you genuinely feel that your tradition is being persecuted, I promise, even if I don't agree, I will take that claim seriously and invite you who feel persecuted to commit not only to your own religious freedom, but to the religious freedom of others, and let us be free together. Brad, you know, I've got to be honest with you. The one reason that I don't like having you on this program is because you always make me feel so dang inferior spiritually and sensitively. Oh, no, that's terrible. No, it's not. it, it It is my way of saying 
how wonderful it is that you can take even people that I think are manipulating religious freedom for their own purposes, and you can see a sensitivity in that and bring an inclusivity to it with also uh, a, a message that is challenging for all of us to be able to share uh, the same rights. Well, I'm going to tell you what part of it comes from, and I think it's a tribute to you, and this is not just giving a compliment back. I am an outsider to that Christian world that feels persecuted. My job as an outsider, especially when I'm annoyed with them, is not to wag my finger and shout. It's to practice greater compassion. You're an insider. And from the inside, your job is to raise that prophetic voice and say, my brothers and sisters, have you lost your mind? (laughs) What is going on? it's, It's easy for me to be spiritually generous, because guess what? At the end of the day, it's not my community. Mm. Mm. And I think this, and, by, and what that means is if every outsider would be more generous, and every insider, by the way, I don't care if this is on Christian, Jewish, Republican, Democrat, mm-hmm. if you're on the outside, be a little more generous. If you're on the inside, raise your voice. So I think it's exactly the way it should be. You should be tri- triply annoyed in raising that voice. <laughs> And I should be saying from the outside, you know, maybe I need to slow down and try and understand a little bit better. Mm. Typically, we get at the reverse. The outsiders critique, the insiders defend, and nothing gets changed. It ought to be that the insiders critique and the outsiders defend. Uh. Thank you very much for that uh, that insight and those words. Um, Brad, earlier this month, you posted a thoughtful response to the proliferation of divisive religious freedom laws in states across the country. I wonder if you'd just say uh, uh, just a little bit about that. Sure, and it's related to what we're talking about. I actually am pretty modest about what are often called religious freedom restoration laws and things like that, because I do understand that people may have very different views from mine, or very different policies that they understand they're called by God to observe than I do. And I do want their needs respected. I believe with all my heart that protecting the religious needs of others, even when I find them objectionable, is a big piece of what religious freedom is about. My plea, and I would go further, my insistence with them is that in pursuit of securing their own religious freedom, which I promise I will fight side by side with them, even as we disagree about what that means, is that they cannot fight to curtail the exact same thing for other people. Mm. You know, I, um, I, I'm sitting here remembering other conversations that you and I have had, and uh, I, I remember some uh, around Hanukkah that were just uh, so insightful and stirring. Um, I I, want to say to you, and it seems a little presumptuous, um, I I want to bless you and the Jewish world uh, as you observe Passover this year, and I want you to share, uh, if you feel like it, with us the blessing that you would give as one of the leaders in Judaism, um, 
the blessing you would give to some of us uh, who are not in that community, but who are participants in what you're celebrating during Passover? So first, Welton, I want to thank you. I'm very grateful for and take very seriously your blessing. You're a teacher and a leader who I have both great respect and affection for, and to receive your blessing is a very, very big thing for me. So thank you, personally. The blessing for the world on Passover, I won't invoke my image, I'll invoke the Bibles and the later rabbis. They imagined that the people who went free from Egypt were not only the Israelites, but other nations of the world also went free. And so the blessing is that as I proudly celebrate this 3,000-plus-year story of Jews going into freedom, I know I am obligated to fight for the freedom of others, and hope and bless others that they should leave the Egypts, the tight spots they are in, and journey out into lives of freedom and prosperity, and then pay that forward by helping others do the same. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield is president of CLOW, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership in New York City. Uh, Rabbi Hirschfield was ranked three years in a row in Newsweek as one of America's 50 most influential rabbis. His book, uh, You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right, Finding Faith Without Fanaticism, is as relevant today as it was uh, the day he finished writing it. Uh, Brad, as always, I really appreciate you taking time to be with us on State of Belief Radio. It's an honor, Welton. Thank you and all blessings to you and to all your listeners.